Hello and welcome to Celebration Church. Let's all stand together as we uh, get ready to do our Wednesday night Bible study. Let's open in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the wonderful words that have been recorded for us so that we can learn about righteousness and, and how the Holy Spirit moves in our lives and the truth of God's word. We're so grateful that we can gather on this night. Thank you for all the people around this building right now and at our campuses and home groups that are studying the scriptures and our young people and the small children, everybody. And just bless everyone as we advance your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. amen. You may pass the offering buckets here in the big city of Green Bay. The rest of you are welcoming, welcoming you here. Glad that you're with us. We are in the book of Galatians, getting ready to go into the book of Galatians. Now, we've been reading in the book of Acts how the Apostle Paul went on his first missionary journey. He starts in Antioch, which is like the main hub of where Paul uh, worked out of and where the Jews and, and the Jewish Christian stuff pretty much said, well, you know, you guys can do your thing over there and don't bug us too much or whatever. So they're kind of on their own, still connected, but you know. So he goes over here to Cyprus and then up around through here, and he goes through Galatia. And we read uh, last week how as he goes through Galatia, uh, he has quite a bit of <laughs> uh, attacks on him. He's having great success. I mean, people like the whole city. Well, I mean, one place he comes and he shares on one synagogue at one synagogue on a Saturday about the basic truth of the gospel, the next week the Bible says the entire city turns out. I mean, people were really desperate to learn about God in their lives and he did really well. But there was also a lot of persecution, people who didn't like what he was doing. And the Bible says that many of the Jews who are at this point uh, were open to hearing about this message got jealous when they saw the big crowds and stuff and it started really irritating him, this idea that, uh, non-Jews could just come to faith without converting first to Judaism, uh, something they just really struggled with. So uh, he's doing great. He comes to, I don't know where it's Iconium or Lister or wherever, but uh, <laughs> he does this miracle and all the people are ready to sacrifice to him because they think they're Greek gods. And, uh, and when Paul figures out what's going on. He gets them to stop. Don't sacrifice us. We're just men. We're preaching the gospel. One minute they're praising him. Then some other guys come in who didn't like Paul and turn the whole crowd against him and they stoned him to death. At least they thought he was dead. They left him for dead outside the city. So one minute, they think he's the greatest thing that came down from Mount Olympus itself. Next minute, they're killing him. Uh, trying to kill him anyway. They didn't kill him. So, uh, so it was really uh, quite a a wild trip for him. So he finally comes back, skips Cyprus on the way back, and just comes back to Antioch. Well, he's there for, you know, several years. I forget what the timeline was. They're guessing maybe about three years or so that he's back there. But it didn't take long before people would come back, particularly Jewish teachers who would come, and they either were part of the Christian community and were pushing this agenda or were infiltrating the Christian community. But the point was they were coming and sitting with them and convincing them they had to become Jewish first. You had to convert to Judaism. You can't possibly come to faith if you don't become Jewish first. And they wanted them to go through all the rituals and stuff. And now, you have to understand that the church here now is made up primarily of, uh, it's, it's a mix. You've got Jewish believers who become Christians, and then you got Gentile believers, or just these pagans and stuff, who become Christians, and they're all together in the church. And uh, so some of them who come from the strong Jewish background were really getting swayed by this and trying to convince those guys, yeah, you really do need to become Jewish. And the biggest thing they wanted them to do, and you'll see it as we get into this, is they were constantly talking about circumcision. It was the big deal. And they would refer to Judaism just as the circumcision. Everything was about circumcision, you know, which, uh, well, you know what that is. <laughs> so uh, someone asked, you know, why do they talk so much about that? I don't know. It was just like it was the major sign that you were Jewish. Uh, I had a friend who texted me this week. It was funny. It had nothing to do with that. We weren't talking about this or anything. But she said she was a Sunday school teacher, and she had to be teaching about circumcision. And a junior high boy comes up to her and says, well, how would they know? 
they had the long robes and did they have to flash each other? I mean, I don't know. It was pretty, it was pretty fun. When you stop and think about it, how would they know? I mean, I don't know. I don't want to know, all right? I don't know how they knew, but I mean, I don't know. It'd be interesting to study that, I guess, in a weird, perverted sort of way. But apparently, they all were up on who was and who wasn't. Anyway, so Paul hears about these guys coming back where he had just been and corrupting what he believed was a corruption of the Christian message. And now this is just the beginning of what's going to lead up to, as soon as we're done here, we're going to go back to the book of Acts where they have this big gathering in Jerusalem to finally settle this question. Do Christians have to be circumcised and obey all the laws of Moses and all that, which was synonymous just with the word circumcision? And then they have this big fight. Well, uh, we believe, we know Galatians was the first epistle that Paul wrote. And um, it's significant because, I mean, he writes the bulk of the New Testament. We'll find out here in a little bit why that turns out to be this way. Okay? But so here's his very first writing. And uh, there's some argument among scholars, and clearly I'm a scholar because I Googled it for all of 20 minutes. But, uh, you know, as I'm reading these scholars' fights, they're, you know, half of them say Galatians was written after this big conference in Jerusalem. And the other half are saying, no, nah, it had to be written before the big conference in Jerusalem. It doesn't really matter one way or the other. It doesn't change anything. Uh, I tend to fall in line with the guys who think that this happens before the letter. And I'll point out to you as we go along why I and, and these other guys think it happens before. It really doesn't mean anything. But, um, but let's take a look at it. So Paul's writing this letter. His motive for this is he is absolutely furious. He is beside himself. At the very end, he talks about what large letters he's writing because he's so mad. And he's trying to con convey to them how mad he is and at the same time hoping he can calm down and stuff. So let's take a look at Paul's very first letter to the Christian church. And it's all around this idea of do Christians have to first become Jews? So he writes, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men, nor by man, by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead to all the brothers and sisters with me and all the brothers and sisters with me. Now, this is something that's very significant, the way he starts out. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men or by man. In other words, other guys didn't send me. I got this from Jesus himself, which really, in a way, he's, he's trying to put himself up on the same status, if you will, as the other apostles who really got the gospel directly from Jesus. Paul wasn't around for all that, but yet he received it by revelation directly from Jesus himself. You know, when he, on the road to Damascus, falls to the ground, Jesus is talking to him, you know, uh, you know he gets saved, his eyes are open, he goes everywhere, and uh, so he really wants to get up there. In fact, there's people, and I mentioned this when we first read the book of Acts in the beginning, where they picked the 12th apostle to replace Judas. I think it was Matthias or whatever. They drew lots or something. A lot of scholars think that they kind of jumped the gun that from all evidence, the 12th apostle should have been Paul, you know, based clearly on the evidence of before us of who had the bigger impact. No one even heard of Matthias after that first day. Uh, but all we know is that Paul really went out of his way, and he'll stress it as we go through this letter, that I didn't make this up. I didn't go to somebody else to get this. I got this from Jesus. So he says, I'm an apostle because Jesus Christ sent me. Somebody didn't send me. All right? So then he starts out, he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So he basically starts out just with a basic Christian message. Jesus died for our sins so that we could know God. All right, we all understand that. So then he launches off <laughs> in, in the next verse. I am, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Now, this is really interesting because... Paul was rather an intense individual. My guess is a lot of us probably wouldn't even like him. <laughs> he was really intense. I mean, now, clearly he, the people loved him and as the apostles, but man, he was like, 
you know, really something else and really direct. Uh, actually, it's interesting of uh, some of the biggest name Christian leaders that I have known of or know, you know, in the last several decades, it's almost common knowledge among anybody that works for them that they're all nightmares to work for. Now, it sounds terrible, but what it is is these guys are so passionate about what they do. Whatever the ministry they're called, so they just don't have time if you're not going to take this seriously. And I'll talk to the guys who work for these guys or met some of these guys and they're like, you know, whoa, dude, relax a little bit. But they're very, very focused, very, very intense. They love God. They love people. But you better do your job and do it right. You know, it's like, whoo, not a lot of mercy. Now, a lot of us, I think today, uh, if we heard someone talking about this idea of a Jewish version of Christianity and stuff, and there are Christians actually who practice this, despite what the Bible teaches. It's the strangest thing I can figure. As clear as the Bible is that you shouldn't do this, there are Christians today who are not Jewish, but yet basically become Jewish because they think it's more spiritual to be sort of Jewish. Uh, we pretty much go, okay, peace, you know. Can we all just get it all? Paul was not nearly as accommodating. He didn't see this as just a different version of the expression of the Christian faith. He saw it as a direct threat to the Christian faith. And that's why he says, I'm surprised that you're turning to a different gospel. It's no gospel at all. Uh, and, and he builds this argument, which we'll get into. Now, evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you, let them be under God's curse. Now, this is the NIV translation. The guys who translate, I don't know who these guys are, the biggest girly men on the face of the earth, others, wussified Christianity as far as I'm concerned. Anything remotely offensive in the Bible, they use words and terminologies that don't sound so offensive. When you read it in the original or look at the older translations, whoa, some of it's really stark, but they kind of downplay it. Under God's curse, what does that mean? You can't find a parking spot, you know, when you go to Walmart. What does that mean? It literally means damned to hell. Now, I got to just look at some other translations. I don't know what it says in Espanol. Some of that might really point it out. But it literally means, he says, oh, these guys go to hell. Whoa, dude. All right. And then, as I've already said, and now I say it again. So he repeats what he says. He doubles down on it. In case you didn't get this the first time, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you've accepted, let him go to hell. Now, you have to understand who these people are. Now, they, the way he paints them, again, because he saw it as such an, a, a direct threat to the true purity of the gospel of Christ, a lot of these people who believe this were Christians, they were Jewish Christians. And we will read when they go for the big, you know, hubbub council, <laughs> whatever, they all get together and they're doing their council thing. And, uh, and, and uh, a lot of them were Christians who were Jewish Christians. But boy, is he strong with these guys. As far as he's concerned, anybody who buys into this isn't even a Christian. So he's very intense here. And then he says, and of course, I'm sure they're thinking, whoa, what are you saying? And right away, he says, am I trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? I don't care what any of them think, is what he's saying. Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now, these guys knew this because as he traveled around, he got the snot kicked out of him almost everywhere he went. He says, if I'm trying to please people, I, was, I don't care what people think. And I certainly don't care what these guys think. And if they don't quit it, I hope they wind up damned for eternity. Wow. He's very, very mad. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preach to you is not of human origin. Again, he really stresses this. He says, I did not receive it from any man. Nobody preached it to me. Nobody showed it to me. Nobody opened the Bible, explained it to me. He said, Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you know, for you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism. He starts giving a little bit of his testimony, reminding them how intensely I persecuted the church and I tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Ju Judaism beyond many of my own age. I mean, he's going up in the ranks, man. He's up in the power rankings of the great religious leaders of his day. 
among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son uh, in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before, uh, before I was. Now, if you read, now remember, we read the book of Acts when he gets converted. What we read was he got saved and in almost no time he's preaching the gospel. In fact, I even remember saying, you know, it's amazing that he would preach the gospel that quickly, but he probably knew so much about the Old Testament and stuff like that. Actually, I'd forgotten this. I'd forgotten the details here. It really shows you that everything that we're reading in the book of Acts historically is not an incredibly detailed. If it was super detailed, it would be this big for the whole book, I mean, to, to really tell you everything that was going on. So they're really kind of chopping along. When you read it, when we read in the book of Acts, it said he got saved, he's preaching the gospel, they tried to kill him, and they let him down in a basket, and he goes to Jerusalem. That's the way we think. So now he says, you remember when I got saved, I didn't go to Jerusalem right away. Really? We thought you did, according to Luke's account. He says, no. He says, uh, but first I went into Arabia. Well, it's the first time we've heard this, see? So you're actually getting more detail, which, again, it's not a slam on the book of Acts or a lot of the historic uh, things in the scriptures. They don't always give you everything. When you read the book of Acts, you get the sense, because we're not very far into it, that all of this happened like in the first couple of months. Years were ticking off here. It wasn't all instantaneous. You think it's all instantaneous as quickly as, as you can read it. He says, but I went into Arabia, which is, you know, the whole Saudi Arabia and stuff. What's in Arabia? Nothing. <laughs> if you've ever flown over there, which I have, it's sand and desert as far as the eye can see. They've got little spots where cities exist, but man, it's just one big forsaken nothing in the middle of nowhere. A lot of oil. I would like to have some of that nothing. All right. But man, I mean, it says, so what he's really saying is I went into the wilderness. Why would he do that? Just to get away, to get alone, to pray, to fast. And apparently he's having all these incredible revelations directly from Jesus himself, which is what makes him the man that he is that winds up penning virtually the entire New Testament. So later he says, I returned to Damascus, which is where we picked it up, you know, and he's preaching and stuff. Then after Three years, it was three years he was in there. You don't get that reading from, from Luke. You think the whole thing was like, bing a bing, a couple of days, he's climbing over a wall. It took years. After three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas. Anybody know who Cephas was? Peter, it's just another name for Peter. They interchangeably use the word for Peter. They will call him Simon. They will call him Cephas. Or they will call him Peter. Why they just can't call him Peter, I don't know. But that's, that's what they did, all right? So I went up to Jerusalem. That's when he met Peter. And I stayed with him for 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, who was the Lord's brother. Remember, who wrote the epistle of James, which we just read. And James's half-brother of Jesus is the one who's basically doing all the administrative work of the church at this point. It wasn't the apostles. The apostles were not popes, as some people have tried to convince people that they were, took turns running. They didn't really try to run anything. All they did was preach and teach the gospel and went wherever they could go, wherever God would lead them, to preach the gospel. Uh, as far as the running of stuff, they left it over to other people because they didn't want to get into that. They just wanted to totally, you see that early on when the church first started fighting over you know, who's getting more food than the other, you know. He didn't, they didn't want to deal with any of it. Get some deacons, make somebody else. All of that, he constantly got other people, they constantly got other people to do stuff because they didn't want to do it. Not that they were lazy, they just wanted to say, focus on preaching the gospel and praying in the ministry of the word. So that's what they did. So I only met James, the Lord's brother, and Cephas, Peter. I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. Which is <laughs> Now, I just talked about this when we read in James, where James said, don't swear. Don't make vows. Jesus said, don't make vows. I talked about my brother, Eddie, who believes in vows and writes a book about vows. I proclaim him to be wrong. So anyway, you're not supposed to be saying, I swear to God this, or this and you should really even stay away from, you know, is God is my witness kind of stuff. I, I think we're supposed to stay away with that. 
So because then I'm reading this, and he says, as God is my witness, <laughs> I'm telling you the truth. So apparently, it's not as bad as I thought. All right. Anyway, he's, talking. he's not swearing, but he's still even using that reference. So, before God, I'm telling you the truth. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report, hey, the guy that was persecuting us before is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. You can imagine. It's like if you heard, you know, Osama bin Laden had gotten saved. Praise God. Wow, that's amazing. All right. So then he says, after 14 years, and for those of you who are really, I don't think anybody listening to me is really that into the literal timelines. The literal timeline would have meant he was 14 years from the time he'd first gotten saved. Because that's how long from then before they had this big hubbub about all this stuff. It wasn't 14 years later after this point. Who cares? I pointed it out. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. Now here is where a lot of people believe that Galatians was written after the big meeting in Jerusalem, where they had this big powwow fighting over whether or not you had to become Jewish. The reason why many people don't think it is, and I don't think it was, but although it doesn't really matter, is the meeting he describes here is very different than the meeting that is pointed out in the book of Acts. Although, again, we just read Paul's account of what happened in his early conversion. We read Luke's account. They sound very different as well. So it doesn't really mean anything. Um, uh, the biggest evidence is what um, he said was the end of the meeting, which is clearly different than the end of the meeting we will read when we go back to Acts. So we think that he goes to Jerusalem, uh, this time with Barnabas. This is before they have the big hubbub meeting. So he said, I took Titus along with me also. And I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I wasn't running and had not been running my race in vain. I wanted to make sure that I'm getting this right. He said, yet not even Titus, who was a, a Greek. He wasn't a Jewish guy. He wasn't compelled to be circumcised, even though he was Greek. They didn't bother him. And I'm, I'm meeting with all these guys. Uh, this matter arose because some false teachers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. I mean, again, his wording for people who take this version of Judaism and try and stick it on Christians, he is not happy about this, does not like these people. He calls them spies to take away the freedom that we have in Christ and turn us into slaves. Again, there are many Christians today who still do the very thing he says. You shouldn't. There, there's a lot, but I mean, it's a small comparatively. You know, some of you might all your lives never hear about them, but they pop up from time to time. Uh, we're all, they, I remember last time I saw it was when I was here with Pastor Arnie some years ago. There was a bunch of people running around to declare that we all had to, you know, worship on Saturday instead of Sunday because we're supposed to be Jewish. And they started referring to uh, God as Jehovah. They didn't say God, they said Jehovah. If you said God, clearly you don't have revelation. And they didn't call Jesus Jesus, they called him Yeshua. And they're, so they're all kind of, and they started following some of the eating patterns, which is fine if you want, but I mean, they felt it was obligatory. The problem is you can't just pick and choose. The Bible's been very clear. To Remember James said, you can't pick and choose. You do one thing, you gotta do all of it. Again, these people, apparently never grasped all of this stuff. So anyway, these people come and started giving us this hard time about, you know, whatever. And we did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever. <laughs> and he literally means it like a snotty teenager. Whatever. Whatever they were makes no difference to me. He's borderline insulting the apostles, the other apostles. He doesn't do it directly, but he's getting as close as he can. Because what he's saying, we went and met with the apostles. I don't care who they were. Whatever. All right, because God does not show favoritism. All right, Paul, relax. But again, he's mad. You ever say something that you wouldn't normally say when you're mad? Not bad, no, he would never do that. So <laughs> you're Puerto Rican, you do it every other day. All right, so, so 
he's really edgy here. He's not insulting, but he's getting real close to it. I went and met with these guys. Yeah, whoever they were doesn't really matter, you know. God doesn't care who anybody is, is what he's saying. All right. But none of them added to my message. And basically, he's saying everybody's agreeing with me. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised. Again, everything's about the willy, okay? Just as Peter had been to the <laughs> circumcised. How they knew, I don't know. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles who were not circumcised. James, Cephas, again, he changes the name from Peter to Cephas, and John, those esteemed pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we would go to the Gentiles and that they would go to the circumcised. Now, this is something we don't see in the book of Acts, but it starts to make clear. Apparently, there is this agreement you know, the apostles said, okay, the guys in Jerusalem, okay, I mean, they're the leaders of the church at this point, and, you know, but they just want to stay to Jewish Christians. And apparently there's an agreement. Look, we'll stay and keep preaching to Jews. You can go preach to the Gentiles. Now, from our worldview, this is slightly even insulting to us. I mean, it's, it's a little offensive. I mean, it's like saying, Look, Randy, you minister to the white people. And Pastor Betts and I will minister to the brown people. All right? Because brown people are different than white people. After all, we are brown. All right? And we don't want to have too much to do with that. I mean, it's, it's a borderline racism is what it is. But worse than that, it's religious racism. I mean, it's very strong, but that's the direction they want. That's why in the book of Acts, now at this point now, you don't hear any more about Peter. It's all focused around Paul. Where is Peter and everybody? Apparently, they had this handshake agreement. Listen, it's okay that you do what you do. We don't mind brown people as long as we don't have to meet with them, all right? They're okay. Just you go to them, and we're going to stay over here. And that's literally what they did and why we don't read much about them. Uh, we do run into Peter's epistle. and so It wasn't like that they were heretics or anything like that. It's just... They had a hard time with this, which we'll still see in a minute, okay? This all gets rather entertaining as we go along here. Now, all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor. So just remember, when you go preach to God, remember poor people, minister especially to the poor. He says, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. So now his conclusion here of this meeting is dramatically different from the conclusion we're going to read when we talk about the big Yo Mama meeting that they have. That's why I agree with the other people that this wasn't the same meeting and that this was written before. The other meeting happens like right after this goes out. So it's all a very close timeline. But whatever meeting they're talking about had to be a different meeting. They must have gone to Jerusalem, did all this, and go back, and then it all started hitting the fan, and everybody starts getting really mad, and then they all go marching back to Jerusalem for the big meeting. But in the meantime, not only did they go to Jerusalem and back, the next verse says, well, then Cephas came to Antioch. So Peter decides to go check on these guys up in Antioch. I don't know how long it would take to walk or travel that long way, but nobody was in a hurry back then. So he comes up, and when he comes up, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. In other words, he's saying Peter came up, and I had to tell him off. For before certain men came from James, the holy James, and all the Jewish brothers, before they showed up, well, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. Yeah, we'll go hang out with the brown people, a couple of tamales, you know, let's hang out. Everything's cool, arroz con pollo, it's a wonderful thing, but up here come the white people and they don't take off. That's the analogy. So when they came up from Jerusalem, all these strict Jewish guys, then Peter and those guys pulled away from them. And they didn't want to eat with them anymore. Well, Paul sees this, and he is just livid. You hypocrite! You phony hypocrite! So he goes on, he's, it's a big deal to him. He says, when, when they arrived, he began to draw back and separated himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy. So all the other Jewish brothers do the same game. And so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas, my buddy Barnabas, 
All right? Now, this is just starting to wear on Paul, the whole Barnabas thing. Because Barnabas and Paul are about to have a major meltdown. And they can't take it anymore. Which means even Christians can get to the point where you can't stand somebody else. All right? You still got to love them. You still got to forgive them. You don't necessarily have to be around them. (laughs) Just the message we'll learn. We'll get to it in due time. But this is just one of the beginnings. So Barnabas, Barnabas, the guy who's been with Paul through all of this. He was there doing this. He probably got the snot kicked out of him just like everybody else. And all the stuff they got it done. But yet when the important people from Jerusalem came, la stinking doll, then they all act like hypocrites. And even Barnabas got caught up in it. And it really ticked off Paul. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Peter, in front of them all, you are a Jew. You live like a Gentile. Oh, don't tell anybody. So he's pointing out what he was doing. And not like a Jew. How is it that you then force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? He's basically calling him a hypocrite. And he's doing this in front of everybody. Paul was really mad. Now, generally, if you need to confront someone, we would encourage you to do it quietly. You know, take them back and, you know, let's talk. Don't do it in front of everybody. Certainly, if you have a problem with me, try not to stand up in the middle of Sunday morning and yell at me. It would be nice if we could talk about it, you know, in the back or something like that. But not Paul. He explodes and he starts rebuking Peter. This is the one who walked with the Lord, sat with him, talked with him, worked with him, all this stuff. And he's chewing him out. And he just rips into him. He says, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. You guys know this. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. You guys couldn't get saved doing this in the first place. We all know that the only way we got into this is by faith in the risen Christ that we've all been preaching. And now suddenly you're playing this stupid game of wanting to go back and play this Jewish car that they're somehow holier than the rest of everybody else? He said, but if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among sinners. Doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? In other words, he's talking out like like they would be thinking. You know, well, we're justified, but we can't hang with sinners, you know, because if you hang around people like us who aren't Jewish, or in our analogy, the brown and the white people, <laughs> around the, well, they're sinners. You can't be around sinners. How can you possibly be around sinners? That means that God's promoting sin if we hang around sinners, which is absurd. Who hung around sinners more than anybody? Jesus. They were furious with him about it. How can you hang with those hoes? How can you hang with those drunks? How can you hang with those traitors to our country and those tax collectors that sold out to the Romans? They hated these people. And yet Jesus is constantly spending time with them. Anyway, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Of course not, he says. Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I will already be a lawbreaker. That doesn't make any sense. I'm not promoting sin. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. Now, this is one very famous verse of Scripture. And uh, every once in a while, we'll run across a verse of Scripture. These are some of the verses you should be able to memorize. You should memorize these Scriptures and be able to recall them at any given time over the next 30, 40 years of your life or whatever you got left. (laughs) Some of us fewer than others had to say. (laughs) By the way, just before the service, sweet lady comes up to me and, you know, we're older. And, uh, and she says, didn't you say such and such last week? I said, I don't think so. And we're going back and forth. And I said, the odd thing is we're both up there. So either I said it and don't remember, or you imagined it. It's hard to know at our age. <laughs> Pretty funny. So <laughs> what was I talking about? I don't know what I was talking about. Oh, yeah, so <laughs> whatever time you should have left, you should know these kind of verses. Here's a powerful verse. I have been crucified with Christ, and I long, no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
Every Christian should know this verse. At some point, this isn't about you. At some point, we all need to sacrifice. We all need to suffer. We all need to give. We all need to serve. Well, what about this? I want this. I want this. Hey, if you're constantly going, I, 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 you don't get it. We've been crucified with Christ. We don't own our lives anymore. All right? We're supposed to be servants of Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but not me. It's Christ who lives in me. That should be the call of every Christian. He says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. So that's the little speech. You'll see the quotation marks in there that he threw into Peter's face in front of everybody. So there's a considerable amount of tension that is building. There's a considerable amount of confusion that's going on. There's a considerable amount of hypocrisy that's being acted out in the midst of all of this. That's why they have the big hubbub in Jerusalem to try and settle this question for once and for all. So anyway, Paul goes on and he, he starts giving what is truly a brilliant uh, breakdown of why Christians do not have to obey the Old Testament law in any way, shape, or form. I should say any way, shape, or form. You should still love your neighbor and stuff like that. Some of those basic things still carry over. But we don't do all the rules. We don't do all the holy days. We don't do celebrate all the spiritual years and all that kind of stuff. I know some Christians still get caught up into that, even at a mild level, but he's pointing out we don't have to do any of that stuff. We are Christians. We have been born again. We live because Christ lives in us. We've been born again. We are new creations, not because of anything we've done, but because of faith. And he says, and if that's the case, then how do you think now you can go back and start doing this stuff to justify yourself? It's patently absurd. And Paul is a very intelligent man. As he said by his own testimony, he was going up the ranks. These guys were highly intelligent people. They didn't know about technology like we do. Although the truth of us, most of us listening to Maria right now, we don't know jack about technology. There's like eight people in the world that knows why everything's going on. We don't know anything. We push a click on a computer and it does what we want. Why? I don't know. We hit the switch, light goes on. How come? Uh, not exactly sure. You know, just we think we're so smart because we have technology and we have smartphones. Therefore, I must be smart. No, just because you have a smartphone, despite the title, doesn't make us smart. All right, oh, we've got all this technology and stuff like that. I would argue that even in our brilliant mathematical and scientific world today, when it comes to critical thought and the grasp of language and stuff, we are not nearly as educated as some of these people were even 2,000 years ago. It's just true. We're not nearly as educated as many Americans were 100 years ago in terms of the language and stuff like that. In fact, now it gets more and more difficult to even communicate amongst each other because most of us, our vocabulary is just constantly shrinking, 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 shrinking. And, and, and we don't use very many words. That's why when we communicate to each other, much of the communication is in how you say it, right? Well, so-and-so says that. Well, how did he say it? Why is that important? Because how he said it means everything. Because whatever caveman-like grunts we use now with the same words have different meaning, right? In fact, they warn you today, if you're arguing with somebody, don't use email. Why? Because they can't hear your voice. And they might misunderstand you. Anybody get in trouble with that? I have so many times, I cannot tell you. I find I just have to swear it off. Don't use email when you're ticked, Gunger. Don't do it! Because I'll still, you know, I could even be nice and someone's crying on the other end because they don't, they can't hear your voice. Now, they didn't have those problems because even a hundred years ago, because there was such a master, you literally meant what you said, right? But they used very, I mean, the language was very, very, I mean, read a, try reading Shakespeare. It gives you a headache, you know. I mean, it's just it's amazing, the language and stuff that we use. And they will use the wherefores and thou arts compared to this and the yet. And, you know, the sun and the stars and the, all these big words. And, you know, today we just go, you know, you're kind of cute. <laughs> right? 
I mean, it's just, it's just so much more simplistic. Why? I don't know why I'm talking about this. Except that he's a very smart man. And, <laughs> and they didn't have to grunt and say things in a certain way for you to understand them. They knew exactly what they're saying, and they used specific words to communicate their meanings. They were very, very clear. Sadly, we today are not nearly as clear. So he goes off. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. And this is really the strongest argument that he has over the next few verses here of why he's right and these other guys are wrong. He says, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit, talking about the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God in your life, by obeying the works of the law or by believing in what you heard? In other words, believing Jesus. Well, clearly, it was because of what they believed. Because, and remember, now he's writing to a mixed group. Some of these guys are Gentiles who become Christians. And a lot of these analogies that he even uses, they, he, they probably don't even know what he's talking about, but all the Jewish guys did. Uh, it's like some of you listening to me, I'll go through some of these things and you won't know what I'm talking about because you don't know the Old Testament like they did. Uh, but he's saying to these guys, look, how did you find this? Even you Gentiles, when you got saved and the spirit of God came into your life and changed your life and you could feel that incredible transformation, was it because you followed a bunch of rituals to get there? Or was it by faith? Well, the answer is evident. It was by faith. He says, are you so foolish? After beginning by the spirit, you're gonna try and end by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain? If it really was in vain? Talking about these incredible Christian experiences they've been having. So again, I ask you, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by you believing what you heard? Remember, not only were they being born again, not only were they being filled with the spirit of God. And, and so, I mean, they were seeing some pretty amazing miracles as these guys went from towns and praying for people and healing the sick and all this kind of stuff. And he just asked them, I just got another question for you. Those miracles and stuff that you saw, was that because you followed the law or because you believed in Jesus? Well, it was all because of Jesus, right? And these guys have been preaching the law for thousands of years. They weren't having those miracles then. And the, and the non-Jewish guys, they knew that it wasn't because of anything they had done. Uh, so that's really his biggest argument uh, at this point that I think holds major sway with these guys because all he reminds them is what they've experienced and what they've seen and heard. And he points out very clearly to them that all of that came through faith in Jesus Christ. It wasn't due to anything else that these other guys are saying are so important. So that's a major coup for him. Then he goes into his Jewish mode and he starts using Jewish stories and analogies to try and convince these, because it's mainly the Jewish brothers who are trying to sell this to the not. I mean, it was easy for them. They were already circumcised. <laughs> we, you know, make no mistake. Everybody wants everybody else to think like them you know, and be like that. We had to do this, you had to do it too. So, he says, so Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He's quoting from the Old Testament. They know this. Abraham was considered what we call the father of faith. He's the father of faith, all right? Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Now, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham when he says to Abraham this, and they all knew it, all nations will be blessed through you. What Paul is saying, this is a picture of the fact that God was going to be spreading the gospel to all people. That's not the way they took it. They thought the world will be blessed just because we're there. <laughs> right? It's like, this place is so much better since I showed up. Right? Amen. I have arrived. It's a wonderful thing. All right? Narcissistic people tend to think that way, you know, or just people like me. And, uh, you know, there's people who walk in the room and say, oh, there you are. And there's people who walk in and go, here I am. All right? So... <laughs> I tend to fall in the ladder, I must confess. But uh, that's what these guys thought. They were thinking when he said the world will be blessed, all the nations of the world will be blessed through you, they're thinking, well, it'll be blessed because we'll be in town or we'll be there. And he said, no, no, no. God was talking about how salvation would come to all people all the way back when he's talking to Abraham. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. That's what they call him, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. 
as it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law, which is a problem because nobody could do everything written in the book of the law. They tried as best they could, but they couldn't pull it off. I mean, they made mistakes all the time. He said, by your own, by the law's own words, you're all cursed. And that was the big thing when he gets down, down to uh, Jerusalem later. He says, why? why are we trying to throw on these people the very thing we could never pull off? And it was a big argument to them. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith, which is also a quote from the Old Testament. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does not live, uh, uh, the person who does these things will live by them. In other words, it just controls your life. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Now, this is really messing with them because he's really being strong here. The very thing they cherished and worshiped and wanted everybody to have, he's calling a curse and using the very words from the Old Testament to prove that it is a curse. This isn't a blessing, all this Old Testament legalism. is not a blessing. Oh, it'd be so blessed if we all did it. No. Those who live by this live under a curse. He says, Jesus came to set us free from a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. Why these guys translated pole, I have no idea, but generally translated tree, which we're talking about being on the cross. Jesus became a curse for us. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Now, brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. What we would say is a contract. You sign a contract, the details are there, all the attorneys have seen it, you've initialed all the right spots, you signed it, it's been notarized, boom. You can't just change it. You can't just say, we're not gonna do this anymore. Although people try to do it all the time today because nobody wants to live up to their commitments. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Now the scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but to your seed, meaning one person. Now, who is Christ? Now, I don't know Hebrew. Anybody here speak Hebrew? I don't know. Uh, this argument doesn't really make a lot of sense in English, okay? Uh, because to us, Seed does mean lots of seeds. You buy a bag of grass, seed. You don't buy a grass, bag of grass seeds, okay? Now, maybe in Hebrew, there's a real distinction between the word seed and seeds. I don't know. I was going to study it, but I didn't want to work that hard. All right, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> Apparently, there's a distinction here. And he says, it doesn't say seeds, the plural. It wasn't the plural of the word. It was a singular of the word. Again, loss in translation here because our singular is the same as the plural. All right? So what he's pointing out is, because they're, they're saying, well, he said Abraham and his seed would be blessed. They interpreted, well, that means all of us. And he said, no, no, no. He said seed, not seeds. So the seed that he's talking about, all this blessing would be, would be through the Messiah, Christ, all right? Now, uh, what I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. Now, this is really significant. It doesn't seem that significant to us because I don't really know what he's talking about. I, mean, I do because I have to study this stuff, but, and some of you do, but I mean, to the everyday guy, you don't really get. To a Jewish guy, all this history is a big deal. Remember every time they would get up to preach, they would go, a mini version through the Old Testament just to say whatever it is they were going to say. Some of it was rather painful as far as I'm concerned. But they were, they were really, really, really into it. Now, they're saying that the most important thing is the law of Moses. But the patriarch of faith was who? Abraham. And the patriarchs were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then you got Joseph and all these guys that brought him into Egypt. So these are like the major guys. And I have to understand, if we're justified by the law, then how are these guys justified? Because the law didn't show up until 430 years later. See, something that would escape most of us. We just think it's all in the Old Testament. But there was, was a big, talk about a gap of three years, 430-year period here. 
So what he's pointing out to these Jewish guys who love Abraham, they love Isaac, they love Jacob, they love all of you. This is like they're the patriarchs. Jacob becomes Israel, and then you have, he has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. All this is based on these incredible men who experience God and all his blessings in 430 years before there was any law. So this is a big argument that he's laying out to them. And they're probably going, oh, I never thought of that. All right? So, for if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. Well, everything started with the promised Abraham. And they understood that. Through Abraham, all the world would be blessed. Jewish people today still celebrate Abraham. Actually, there's another group that celebrates Abraham. You know who they are? The Muslims. We'll explain that in just a minute. Because Abraham was daddy to two kids. Isaac, the son of the promise, and Ishmael, who was not of the promise. We'll get to that as we go along here. All right. So, uh, they still give each other grief to this day. So, he says, why then was Allah given it all? So, he's asking their question. We do this. I do this when I write, you know. Well, Pastor, what about such and such? You know, so that's, that's what he's doing. Why was Allah given it all? Well, it was added because of transgressions until the seed, singular, to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. Uh, okay, let's get in the weeds with this one. Now, um, the law was given because of sin. The law was added to keep them in line because the world was extremely chaotic uh, back then. So Moses comes and he adds this law to keep people in line because things would just get crazy. There was no law. The laws of morality and stuff, were, it was just a big blur. And people did whatever they wanted. It was usually turned out to be bad, violent, immoral, disgusting. And Jesus hadn't come yet. So we got to do something to keep these people in line. <laughs> so they come up with the law of Moses, which keeps them in. Now, it's a really strict law, like you cannot imagine. Now, one of the really strict ones that's often quoted today because of all the same-sex insanity that's going around our country is in the Old Testament, it says if a man has sex with another man, they should be stoned to death. And of course, the person who approves of it thinks, well, the Bible's horrible. And the person who thinks it's bad, that just proves how much God hates it. Well, it does neither, actually, um, because it's not a sign of how much God hates homosexuality. It's just the strict law for anything because the death penalty was handed out for all kinds of transgressions. If you used God's name in vain, they could kill you, which would wipe out a lot of you right here. All right? If you were disobedient to your parents, the penalty was death. They would kill you for that. They'd kill you for almost anything, which again would wipe out the rest of you. All right? So, I mean, it was really strict. Now, historically, you go back and there's very little record that anybody ever enforced those rules, as barbaric as it sounds. Uh, one could argue it was a version of hyperbole to keep people in line. You know what's a great example of this? Jesus was a bit of a hyperbolist. You know what a hyperbolist is? Your pastor is a hyperbolist. Someone who uses over-exaggerated statements to make a point, okay? I, it drives people crazy. People who are literalists, who come to listen to me preach, after a few weeks, they go insane. They can't take it. Because they think, you know, every little thing I say is literal, and they just go insane, and they can't handle it. You know, most people get it when I exaggerate to make points. I believe Jesus, at a degree, was a hyperbolist when he'd say, look, you shouldn't be lusting after people, okay? Then he goes on, hey, if your eye offend you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. Now, if we were all hardcore literalists, a lot of us would be going around with no hands and only one eye. All right, that's Christian. Christ taught that. But nobody in Christian tradition, only insane people, there are insane people who actually read that in the Bible and have cut things off. It's, you know, and you feel bad because they're just nuts. 
But that's nobody in any Christian experience at any level believes you're literally supposed to do that. It was a way of saying, you better take this seriously, right? I don't want to pluck my eyeball out. If I mess up, I'd rather ask for forgiveness and try not to do it again, okay? So there's a great argument that a lot of this, I'm going to kill you for every little thing to do, was a bit of a hyperbolistic way of communicating don't do this. Don't be cursing. You know, if you knew the possibility for death, for cursing was death, there'd be a whole lot less people at work saying, well, Jesus Christ, every time they didn't like something. Right? They probably wouldn't say that because, you know, the death thing would be a bit of a deterrent. All right? Children wouldn't be quite nearly as disrespectful if you knew that the possibility was death. And there's all kinds of stuff. They'd kill you for all kinds of stuff. Again, it's interesting when you go back and look, as far as I know from a Jewish tradition, they virtually never enforced that. It wasn't about killing people. It was about don't do it. That was the point. All right? So the law was given to keep people in line because you know, it was going to be hundreds of years yet before Jesus ever showed up. And without some strict rules, there would just be anarchy. But the strict rules aren't what made you saved. It's not what redeemed your soul by following the rules. They had rules about everything, what you could eat, what you couldn't eat, when you could work, when you couldn't work, what you could wear, what you couldn't wear, when you could make love to your wife, when you couldn't make love to your I mean, these people were into everybody's business in extreme detail, which I will spare you. But it was a very strict, the law of Moses is not just the Ten Commandments. <laughs> I can handle the Ten Commandments. <laughs> It's the rest of them, holy stinking cow. There weren't just 10. There's hundreds of them. Some of the bizarrest, strangest rules. <laughs> Some of them are hilarious. You're not supposed to cook a goat in its mother's milk. Okay. Is there a why given? Not really. They just didn't do it. You don't want to break the law. Bizarre stuff. <laughs> I'm just, I'm a little crazy in the head. I'm running out of time, so I'll end with this. There's a uh, funny law. This is a law that if a man and another man are fighting and the wife of one of the men jump in and grab the other guy by his man place, right, by the stones, it says, if you grab a man's stones, you're supposed to cut her hand off. Now, first of all, there's that much stone grabbing going on that you need a rule in the Bible? Don't touch the cojones. You touch the cojones, cut your hand off. I mean, I'm telling you, there's a lot of crazy in there. So he's trying to say, you really want this? You don't want this. Not that we encourage grabbing stones. All right. So, and then, now this is getting into the weeds here, and I guess I got two minutes, but I'll go over just a little bit. Where are you going to go? <laughs> the law was given to angels and entrusted to a mediator. Who was the mediator? Moses. And it says it was given to him through angels, something you don't really see much in the Old Testament. Uh, a mediator, how, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. In other words, what he's saying is God did not literally give you the law. I mean, he's really messing with him here. He's really challenging him. Moses gave you the law. He was the mediator between what angels were telling him. In fact, that's why Jesus had no problem coming along and saying, you know, Moses said this to you, but I'm telling you, and then he'd say something else. Why could he say that? Does God contradict himself? No. But God didn't say that. Moses said it. And he went, and what, a lot of Jesus' teaching was just clarifying some of the things that Moses said that Jesus wasn't happy about, right? I mean, it's, it's pretty, pretty fascinating as you read this stuff. So he's really pointing out to them that are just so in love with this law. He's pointing out the weaknesses of it. He's pointing out the faults of it, the absurdity that that was makes you righteous because the guys that we think were really righteous didn't even have the law for 430 years that it was there just to keep people in line, and there was a mediator. Moses is kind of deciding what the rules were going to be, and it wasn't God, because God is not a mediator. That implies that there's more than one. God is one. 
So all of that to basically slam down this argument about the law. He's going after it like a skilled attorney and ripping it to pieces. He is shredding their arguments for why the law should be obeyed. And he's just tearing it apart. And he's not done. When we come back next week, we will pick it up. And he keeps using different analogies and stuff. Uh, <laughs> at one point, he gets really hilarious because he's so mad. But uh, he's, he's a little horked, okay? So next week, picking up chapter three, verse, no, yeah, chapter three, verse 23, and we'll continue his argument about the law. God bless you all. Bye-bye.